Let's now turn to today's passage, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. It's Mark chapter 9, 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they've brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Good morning. Good to be with you. Good to worship with you. If we've not had the chance to meet uh, yet. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. We are continuing our study in the book of Mark today, and we are in this very critical portion of the book where the disciples have now understood that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one that God has sent to defeat evil. But instead of that awareness, that revelation, energizing them, getting them excited about him and his mission, it's left them unsettled. And it's left them unsettled because of how Jesus has defined his mission. That it's his intention to defeat evil by submitting to the power of evil. That he will destroy the power of evil by suffering, by dying, and then by rising from the dead. And the disciples are not quickly uh, getting on board with what he's saying. We saw two weeks ago that after Jesus said this, immediately Peter pulls him aside and starts to rebuke him. We saw that Peter and the rest of the disciples rejected what Jesus was saying. Last week, we learned, listened as the disciples suggested indirectly, maybe Jesus was mistaken. They felt that humanity could do enough on our own to restore ourselves to God and to each other, and so there really was no need for Jesus to suffer or to die. 
In short, they don't really believe what Jesus is telling them about himself and about what he has to do. They do believe that he is the Messiah. For that, they have faith. But they're still holding on to their own ideas of how the Messiah is going to confront and defeat evil. They don't fully believe what Jesus has said. And while they are in this place of confusion, this partial belief place, the very next thing that happens to them is this direct confrontation with evil. A spirit is oppressing a boy. Now what is that? It's a relatively small amount of evil in the overall scheme of the universe. It's a boy-sized amount, not very much at all. And yet the disciples are powerless against it. Which is odd, because if you remember back in chapter 3, Jesus called these guys to be with him, but also he wanted to send them out so that they would teach and cast out demons. He called them so that they would be able to deal with this very kind of face-to-face confrontation with evil. It's part of what they're supposed to do as his followers. And it's something that they have done. When he sent them out in chapter 6, they drove out many demons. They were successful. But here in chapter 9, they're not. What has happened in between chapter 6 and chapter 9 so that they're no longer able to do what Jesus has called them to do, no longer able to do what they've already done? What's changed is that Jesus has revealed more of himself to them, but they have not embraced what he showed them. They haven't believed. And Jesus underlines that it's their lack of faith that is at the root of their powerlessness. When he hears that they couldn't cast the demon out, he says, verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him, bring the oppressed boy to me. Jesus is frustrated. He expects that they should have been able to take care of this while he was away. That's what he called them to be able to do. And he ties their failure to their lack of faith to not keeping in step with where he's leading them. Now, before we go any further this morning, let's acknowledge up front that events in the Scripture dealing with personal forces of evil, demonic spirits, these kind of accounts make a lot of modern people uncomfortable. You and I live in a world that teaches us to believe that the material world is all that there is, and if you have to talk about spiritual evil, at least call it a force, something impersonal. That's the world you and I live in. And when you're immersed in that world, when you grow up through school, when you're in college, in the workplace, it can be hard to talk about spiritual beings without being embarrassed. It can even be hard for us in the church. And so it's very tempting to look at a passage like this and try to find a way to not take it quite as literally. One option is to say, well, what Mark is describing here it sure looks like some form of a seizure, some kind of epilepsy. Maybe it's how pre-modern people understood what we now know is a medical condition. Very tempting to think that. But that won't work because everybody here agrees that there is something personal, some personal being behind what's going on. Jesus especially believes that. Verse 25, he rebukes the unclean spirit. He speaks to it. He treats it as a real personal being so that you can't say, well, this is just a medical condition in disguise. Think, okay, well, what other options are there if, I don't, if I'm still uncomfortable with taking this literally? You could say, well, okay, this account is not really historical. It's a made-up situation. 
It's an illustration. It's a teaching device to help us understand how to deal with evil stuff. It, it's, it's a metaphor. What happens if you go down that road, if you treat this as fiction? If you do that, you're going to end up with things that you can't explain. Like why the disciples are portrayed as being both unbelieving and incompetent. That is not something that you would have written 2,000 years ago. Not something that you would say about the future leaders of the church just to teach something about evil. If you did that, what's that going to do? It's, it's going to undermine people's confidence in these future leaders. It's going to make the church less attractive, not more. Instead, you would say something positive about them and positive about the way that they engaged what's going on here. Or notice verse 26. Right after Jesus commands the spirit to leave, the spirit convulses the boy terribly. The spirit makes him suffer really horribly. And again, if you're writing fiction, if you're creating a religion based on Jesus being God when he wasn't, is this the kind of thing that you would write to convince someone that he is supremely powerful over evil? Supremely powerful, and yet the spirit convulses the boy terribly. You wouldn't write it that way. You'd write Jesus just saying the word and the spirit leaving and the boy unharmed. These are things that you find in the text that you would not make up. They're things that you would only write if they're true, if they really happened. And so what we're given here is best understood as a real-life account of an encounter. It's what someone remembered when they came into contact with a real personal evil spirit. And it's only by taking all of it seriously that we then start to understand the nature of evil, that we understand its intentions, we understand its effects, we understand then what to do about it so that you know what to do about it when you encounter it in your own life. Now to get at that then, we're going to ask four questions today. First, do you see what evil is doing in the world around you? Are you aware of it? And are you aware of its agenda? Do you see it? Second, do you know people who are impacted by it? Do you know how they're impacted? Third, do you take it seriously when you see it? And fourth, have you embraced Christ's way of dealing with it? Do you see evil in the world? Do you know people who are impacted by it? Do you take it seriously enough? And have you adopted Christ's way of dealing with it? First, do you see the nature and intention of evil in the larger world? This passage teaches us what it is that we should look for. Verse 20, they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Now this is really important. Notice the sequence here. The Spirit saw Jesus, and immediately it convulsed the boy. And when it does that, it's giving you a glimpse into the heart of evil. It's helping you see that there is deep contempt in evil for God. Think about the other options. The Spirit could have seen Jesus and been terrified that it's going to be found out. And so it went very still. It did absolutely nothing to draw any attention to itself. That's an option. Or it could have seen Jesus and been humble and deferential. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it recognized his omnipotence, and it bowed before him. The Spirit does none of those things. Instead, it sees Jesus, its creator. 
the one who made it. And it immediately convulses the boy, contracts his muscles violently, gives him these involuntary muscle spasms till the boy can't stand up, ends up rolling on the ground, foaming at the mouth. The Spirit takes a human being, someone made in the image of God, and robs him of all his dignity as a human being, utterly degrades the image of God that God gave to him. And the Spirit does this in front of God's face, puts his contempt out there where you can't miss it, where God can't miss it. This child is created to reflect the glory of God in his person, in his being, just by existing. And the Spirit takes that reflection, the reflection of the eternal, glorious God, and mocks it makes the reflection of God roll uncontrollably around on the ground in front of its creator. It's the Spirit effectively saying, there, Jesus, that's what I think of you. And that's what I think of everything that reminds me of you. I think it's all disgusting. That's what I think of what you value and prize. That's what I think of your ideas. It's what I think of what you think is glorious. I don't value what you value. I don't value what you do, and I will take every chance I can to undo what you've done and to throw it back in your face with impunity. That's the heart and the nature of evil. It expresses its baseline contempt for God, and it does so especially on this planet by destroying the image of God that is in every human being. It focuses its hatred on destroying that part of the creation that is the very best reminder of God. It focuses on people. And it tries to destroy that image wherever it can, whenever it can. Now this destruction is on a continuum. You can see that continuum here. On one end, at the very least, the Spirit seeks to incapacitate the child. Verse 18 to seize him and throw him down while he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid, to make it impossible for this child to function as a representative of God. It works to impair and mar the image of God in this boy. But on the other end of the continuum, you see its real goal, because the real goal is to remove this child from the world, to remove this image of God, this reminder of who God is from the visible universe so that you can't see God like you used to be able to. And so verse 22, the Spirit has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. That's the ultimate goal of evil, to completely eliminate human beings. If you want to understand what evil is, you have to understand that there is nothing subtle about what evil is doing. It hates God, and it hates every single person who represents and reflects God. And it takes its hatred out by trying to destroy people. And here's the real horror on this planet. It co-opts us to do that. It invites human beings to join its agenda of destroying other human beings. And it makes that agenda sound really reasonable. How do you do that? How do you convince someone made in the image of God that destroying other images of God is a good idea? You have to create a plausibility structure. You have to create ideas that support the end goal 
of destroying the image of God. Ideas that appeal to us, that sound good to us, that let us justify or excuse treating human beings as something less than the image of God, or that justify and excuse us when we destroy or degrade other images of God. Let me suggest three ideas that are prevalent in our world that go into building this plausibility. Each of these could be their own topic for this morning. I'm just going to go over them lightly because what I want you to notice is the cumulative effect of them on our world, on how they teach us to regard human beings in our world. First, there's the argument that says the planet cannot sustain our current population, much less an increased one. That it's irresponsible to continue being fruitful and multiplying, as God has told us. Very popular argument. One that's really not new. The Stanford biologist Paul Ehrlich wrote a best-selling book back in 1968. It was called The Population Bomb, in which he predicted that in the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people would starve to death. That starvation didn't happen because humanity, people, learned how to produce greater quantities of food to care for the people who were born. And yet that idea remains very popular in our culture. Now, are there real problems with overcrowding in our world? Are there problems with distribution of resources, with the quality of life? Of course there are. But the solution that is proposed is not, how do we make life better for images of God so that there can be as many lives as possible? The solution that's proposed is, how do we have less lives? And what that does is that idea then exerts downward pressure on the idea of having children. Downward pressure on the idea of helping to create eternal images of God, of populating the universe with representations and reflections of God. It makes having fewer images of God seem like a reasonable idea. That's one plausible idea. Here's a second. It's the argument that human beings are not qualitatively different from the rest of the animal kingdom. That sure, our species is more developed, able to exert its influence over other species. We're stronger, smarter, more technologically advanced, but we are not somehow unique, special, beyond the power that we can exert over others. When you take away our specialness, make us just like all the rest of the animals, our being made in the image of God is no longer there. What happens? You reduce us to the level of any other animal life, and you also take away any reason to value human life in ways that are unique and special. You make it more acceptable to mistreat people. Because if we're all just animals, no different from any other animal, except some of us are smarter and stronger, there's nothing to keep us from using our smarter strength against each other. Okay, some of us might feel that that's wrong, that just because you're stronger doesn't mean you can mistreat others, but if we're all just animals, there isn't anything that weaker people can appeal to. Nothing that stronger people have to listen to. Nothing to keep racism from making sense to people. Nothing to keep elitism from making sense to people. If your tribe, your ethnicity, your social class can get away with something, there's now no reason not to if there's nothing inherently special in every single human being. 
There's nothing to keep us from tribalism if God didn't build something into people, and there's nothing to keep us from taking advantage of each other. If you and I don't recognize a reflection of God in each other's face that demands we treat each other with dignity and respect, then there's nothing that pushes back from us treating each other like a commodity, from using each other financially, sexually, whatever we can get out of each other. Does the idea that we're all just animals force people to mistreat each other, to abuse and use each other? No. What it does is it makes it less heinous to do so, makes it more plausible, makes it easier to justify why it's okay to see someone as less valuable than you see yourself, which then opens the door to the third idea, that because not all human life is equally valuable, that there are certain conditions where it's acceptable to eliminate people who are in the way. And so we get comfortable with the idea that killing some people is okay, or at least that it's not horrific. And so in the modern age, we've learned not to let the idea of abortion be abhorrent. Euthanasia sounds more and more reasonable to our ears. Suicide, it's regrettable, but it feels like a legitimate option, a plausible option to many people in the same way that genocide feels acceptable to others. You can justify it. It's not murder. It's what? It's ethnic cleansing. Everyone wants to be clean. That's a good thing, right? In the same way multiple nations in the last century justified bloody revolutions that eliminated tens of millions of their own citizens, all in the name of freedom, liberation, and economic prosperity for those who survived. We live in a world that has as much contempt for the image of God as the demonic spirit had when it came face to face with Christ. Only we have it on a much larger scale. Our contempt affects a whole lot more people. It acts to reduce the number of additional people coming into the world, and it acts to distort or eliminate those who are already here. You cannot afford to think that evil is random and chaotic. It has an intention. Its intention is to damage and remove you, and to damage and remove anyone who shares in your humanity, in your image of Godness with you. It has an intention to undermine a culture of life and to promote a culture of death, and to do so by the very people that it has determined to destroy. That's point one, the nature of intention of evil that's all around you. Point two, how aware are you of people who are impacted by this kind of evil? Do you know anyone who is? Evil sets out to destroy humanity, but it does so methodically by attacking us one person at a time, like this boy. What's it do? It disables him physically. It keeps him from living a life where he can reflect the glory of God, and it isolates him socially. Verse 25, he's deaf and mute. He can't hear his parents or family when they try to comfort him after one of these episodes. He can't express to them what it's like for him to struggle against the Spirit. It affects him personally, and it cuts him off from others, and it affects the people around him. It impacts his family. 
His father has come face to face with evil as it affects his son. And the father knows that he's impotent, feels helpless, that there's nothing he can do to prevent the, the attacks. The boy and his family are suffering from real evil that's really affecting them personally. And get this, Jesus knows their story. He's entered into their personal hell with them. Evil is not a construct for him. It's not a philosophical idea, an analytical category that he finds useful as a way of thinking about this world. He's not engaging here with generalized evil that affects generalized people, you know, people who are nameless, faceless, parts of a larger mass of humanity that you can sort of swap in and out and not really change anything. Jesus does not engage evil in these large analytical categories. What's he doing? He's interacting with a father and a son, two individuals who have an utterly unique history. They have their own history. It's a history that can be known, and it's a history that is known because Jesus invites himself into it with them. He tells the man, verse 19, bring him, bring the boy to me. I don't want to remain on the outside, just distantly observing what's going on, untouched by what touches you. I want to enter into the darkness with you of what you're experiencing. I want to be involved with you as you confront evil. Bring the boy to me. Jesus invites himself into their present moment, and he also asks, what's this been like for you? Verse 21, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus is thinking of these people as special, unique individuals who have a special, unique history in their struggle with evil. And Jesus wants to know both father and son personally. You notice here that Jesus is not settling for high-minded ideas of saving humanity. He's focused on what? He's focused on rescuing distinct human beings. You will never engage evil in this world like Jesus does unless you do it from this perspective, unless you get involved with individuals, unless you can see their faces, experience how their lives are impacted, unless you hear their stories, understand their needs. You have to think personally about people, not impersonally about ideas about people. About 30 years ago, Paul Johnson wrote a book called Intellectuals in which he looked at leading thinkers from the past 200 years. And he evaluates them not on the strength and weakness of their ideas. He evaluates them on the kind of lives they lived as persons. And one of the things that he notes is the tragic irony that people who profess great love for humanity can be incredibly vile in the way that they treat individual human beings, especially the people around them. It's ironic that for these great humanitarian thinkers, ideas about people mattered more to them than actual people. That the things that spring from their own minds are more valuable to them than someone else who has a mind of their own. If you're going to engage evil like Jesus does, you have to spend time getting to know people. You have to spend time until this boy is not a case or a condition, but he's a real person with real needs who you really get to know. 
If you don't know real people, then you're not ready to engage evil. Because fighting evil is not a cause that you join. It's not a program that you're part of. It's not something that you can control and schedule nice and neatly into your week. Fighting evil is personal. It's messy. It means you ask questions like, who do I know who's suffering from the impact and the intention of evil in their lives? I know that there isn't anyone who can escape evil on this planet, but can I put faces and names to people who I know are suffering right now? Do I know personal stories? Have those personal stories touched me, impacted me? Or do I prefer intellectual categories? Do I think things like, it'd be a good thing to help the poor, but I really don't know anyone who's poor. Or I want to help the oppressed, but I don't know anyone who is. As long as you put the word the in front, the poor, the oppressed, the homeless, the suffering, the impoverished, as long as you think of categories of people instead of individuals that you've actually gotten to know, you're always going to be working at a distance from real people with real needs. You don't see Jesus doing that here. He engages individual persons and forms a bond a connection with them as he enters their world to fight what evil's trying to do to them. If you and I are going to enter into combating evil in this world, we have to do the same. So point one, the nature and intention of evil is to destroy human lives. Point two, those human beings are all around you, and you need to know them if you're going to help combat evil in this world. But point three, you can only do that if you take evil seriously enough. And you need to, because if you're following Jesus, you should expect people to seek you out, to ask you for help with the evil that they face. The boy's father tells Jesus, verse 17, Teacher, I brought my son to you. I was out of my depth. I knew I needed help, so I came to you for help. At the end of verse 18, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able to. Notice what he's done here. He came to Jesus for help. Jesus was not around, but the disciples were. So the man very naturally asked them to do what he initially came to ask Jesus to do. He assumed that the whole point of following the rabbi Jesus was to learn to represent Jesus in every way possible. And he wasn't wrong. That's exactly the life that Jesus invited the disciples into. There's an understanding in their culture, as one of the commentaries puts it, that the messenger of a man is as the man himself that you should expect from the messenger the same things that you would expect from the man that the messenger is following. It's a legitimate expectation on the part of the man that by bringing his son to the disciples, the disciples could then make him well. We saw earlier in verse 19 that that was also Jesus' expectation of the disciples. The disciples are confused. Why couldn't we cast this out? It was also their expectation, which means that you and I should expect the same thing. If we claim to follow Jesus, it's legitimate for people to think that we have some sense of what he might do or say to deal with the evil that they face. And not all of us are comfortable with that. People used to say it's very tempting still to say, don't look at me, look at Christ. It sounds very humble, very pious. 
I'm not your example. Jesus is. But that's not how a disciple thinks. Paul the Apostle told people explicitly in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I follow Christ. Follow my example as I follow Christ. Look at me. Look at what I do. Listen to what I say. And as long as that lines up with Christ, you should do the same things yourself. The boy's father expected the disciples to handle evil the way that Jesus would. Your family and friends and co-workers are right to expect that same thing from you. The disciples, however, did not handle the Spirit like Jesus would. They failed. And their failure confused them. They asked Jesus, verse 28, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus accuses them, verse 29, of not praying, of attempting a prayerless exorcism, which tells you what? It tells you they did two things in the face of evil. One, they relied on themselves, on their own abilities. It tells you that they thought something like this to themselves. We got this. We know what to do. We've done it before. We'll just do it again. They didn't feel a need to pray, to rely on God to work through them. They didn't feel like they had to stay in tune with him and with what he was doing. They overestimated themselves in the face of evil. Overestimated their own abilities to deal with evil. And they underestimated the power of evil. They just didn't think it was going to be all that hard. Sure, the boy's father couldn't do anything, but hey, they knew what they were doing. They'd been following Jesus. They didn't believe that evil was as bad as evil really is, that it's not this stubborn and this entrenched, this tenacious, which is absurd. You have to remember the larger context that we've been going over the last couple of weeks. How Jesus has told them it is so hard to rescue people from evil. It will take literally every last bit of life that I have to defeat it. I'm going to have to suffer like you can't begin to imagine, and it will kill me. I'm willing to do that, but it's hard, really hard, to overcome evil. It takes the death of the Son of God. They heard all of that. And yet when faced with real evil right in front of them, clear evil, no question as to what this was, when they saw that, they responded with, yeah, okay, but here's a boy-sized amount of evil. Surely this isn't going to be too hard. We got this. Clearly they don't. They did not believe. They did not have faith in what Jesus was saying, and they were completely unprepared then to do anything when they had to face what evil is really like. They overestimated themselves, underestimated the power of evil, and were unable to help. They did accomplish one thing, however, and that is they discouraged this man more than he had been before. He brought his son to Jesus, expecting to get some help, but now, verse 22, he's not real sure. He says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can. He's not too sure anymore that Jesus has anything to offer. Do you see how crucial it is that you not only see what evil's trying to do, that you not only see how it's affecting other people around you, but that you actually have the ability and the readiness to help? Because if not, 
you undermine people's confidence, not just in you, but in Jesus. And there are a lot of people who have experienced this. Maybe some of you have. People who at one time, they, they came to youth group, they came to church. They engaged with modern-day disciples. But modern-day disciples who overestimated themselves and underestimated evil, who thought that it was enough to know what is true and to say to each other, just do it. Just do the right thing. Come to service, engage in these religious activities, and, and everything will be fine. Disciples who were not prepared to help real people in real need. And so some of these people have walked away with less confidence in Jesus. When you follow Christ, you are his representative by definition, which means that you have to deal with your own areas of unbelief, areas where Jesus says things that you don't like to hear, areas that leave you trusting yourself more, trusting him less. You may not think that not fully embracing him, that, that, that just impacts you. It also impacts the people who are watching. Now, how can you tell if this is you? How can you tell if you're not ready to help the people who are going to come and ask for help to deal with the evil that they face? Here's a couple questions. Ask yourself, what do I rely on when I'm faced with real evil and real suffering, both in my life and in other people's lives? Do I pray? Do I rely on Christ? Do I ask him for the grace that I need in order to live well? Or do I go just go on autopilot thinking, I got this, not a big deal? Do I pray? Secondly, am I at all helpful to people? Do I have a track record of being helpful? Or, or, or am I kind of confused because I'm doing my best and all it seems to produce is people who are less confident that Jesus can do anything at all in their lives? Am I helpful? Ask yourself those things. And if the answers are not real encouraging, don't despair, because there is hope. The disciples did believe. They believed that Jesus is the Messiah, but they struggled to believe. They struggled to believe that he had to deal with evil by suffering and dying. They believed, and they struggled with unbelief. And yet the history of the church says they overcame their struggle. So how did they come, point four, to embrace Christ's way of dealing with evil? There's only one way, and that's the way of the Father. The disciples in this story did not pray, but one person does. The boy's father prays. He's very aware that he's not on the same page as Jesus. But instead of running away, he cries out to Jesus. He cries out with his need. That's what prayer is, right? He prays to Jesus. Verse 24, he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Very, very simple prayer. He admits his guilt, his unbelief, his faithlessness. He admits that he does not have what it takes to be faithful. He admits that he is part of the faithless generation that's upsetting to Jesus. But then he says, Lord, give me more faith. Help my unbelief, which is spot on. His theology is rock solid here. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says explicitly, faith is a gift of God. It's a gift. It's not earned. It comes from God. It's not something that you can start to generate on your own. 
Man knows he can't be faithful on his own, so he comes to the only person there who can give him the faith that he needs. And he says to Jesus, I see my need. I see that I'm not on the same page as you are, but I want to be. I do believe I've already been given that much faith. That's encouraging. It means that God's already at work in my life. But I don't yet believe as much as I need to believe. God, help. Help my unbelief. Give me more faith. And God, in response, Jesus says, you got it. And he commands the spirit, verse 25, to leave the boy and never enter him again. Jesus gives what only he can. Why? The man asked. The man saw his, his need as he faced the presence of real evil in his life, saw his son suffering from external evil, and he saw himself wrestling with internal evil, with his own unbelief. And he based all of his hopes and dreams for deliverance for his son and for himself on Jesus doing for him what he could not do for himself. And that's all that God is looking for. Notice what Jesus does not do here. He doesn't say to the man, what are you thinking? You need to do more. You need to have real faith. When you really believe, then come back, and then I'll heal your son. doesn't say that. Just like he doesn't say to the disciples, that was a real fail. You guys have to try harder. You have to do better. Jesus doesn't say that. What's he do? He answers the one man's prayer, the prayer of confession and his request, and he tells the disciples, you need the same thing. You need to pray. You need to ask God to align you with himself. You need to rely on God to give you the faith that he wants you to have. See, the issue is not how strong or entrenched the evil is that you're facing in life, whether it's inside of you or outside. The issue is, not, is also not how big your faith is and whether you are up to the task. The issue is, do you see that faith in yourself will never defeat sin and will never defeat evil? but that asking for faith from God will. If you see that, then just like this father, you'll gladly turn to Jesus for his help. What's that man's prayer do? It ends up putting the boy on this road that Jesus said he himself was on. This road of suffering, death, and resurrection. Verse 25, Jesus commands the spirit to leave. In verse 26, the boy cries out and the spirit convulses him terribly. <laughs> you don't expect that. You expect that coming into contact with Jesus is just going to relieve all the boy's sufferings. Instead, it does the exact opposite. It increases his suffering. That often happens, by the way, right? You've experienced that probably in your own life. You can go back into the book of Exodus. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let God's people go, and Pharaoh makes their life, what, harder increases their suffering. That's what happens when God starts to move to rescue and to save. Things get even worse, though, after the Spirit's gone. The boy looks so much like a corpse, verse 26, that most of them standing there said, he's dead. The boy's not moving, not visibly breathing. It looks in that moment like evil has won, that it accomplished its goal of fully destroying the image of God. But then Jesus does what? He reaches out his hand, verse 27, takes the boy by the hand, 
just like he took the little girl's hand in chapter 5, the girl who had died, and he lifts the boy up, and the boy arose. He was raised. What just happened here? Jesus judged evil. He would not allow the evil spirit to make a home in an image of God. He gave evil what it deserved, and he made it leave. That's good news. But the process is costly. The boy suffers, looks like he died, and then was raised to life. The boy walks the same road that Jesus said he himself has to. The road of the cross that he told his disciples they would have to walk if they wanted to follow him. Why is this? Why does he call us to this kind of life, this life of suffering, of dying, of living in the shadow of the cross all of our lives? It's because evil does not relent. If you think it does, if you think it's going to let up on you, if you think it will hold you and God in less contempt, you've underestimated it. It's not going to easily let go. And the closer that you get to God, the more contemptuous it's going to be. The more visible its hatred will be. But here's hope. God does not relent either. He takes on the real cost of dealing with evil, of suffering, dying, and rising from the dead. Jesus is the Lamb of God that Isaiah 53 talks about, who will not cry out as he's led to the slaughter. Jesus chooses to go mute, just like the boy, takes the boy's place. Jesus is the one who will be rigid, unable to move, pinned to the cross, while his humanity is degraded for hours in front of everyone. Stripped naked, beaten, spit on, publicly mocked, left with no dignity, the image of God ruined until he dies, and then finally raised. So that what? So that evil will be destroyed in his people. So that it will have no home in anyone who follows him. He will do that because it, that's what it takes to destroy the power of evil, to destroy the power that it has on your life. It's the path that Jesus chose for himself, and it's the path that you're going to have to be on if you want to follow him. It's your road because the very first time that you cry out to him in faith to save you from evil, it's in that moment that his Holy Spirit connects you to him, unites you to him, so that you then share in everything that he went through for you so that you share in his sufferings as you experience the same kind of antagonism and contempt in this life from evil that Jesus did, so that you share in his death, so that evil is put to death inside of you, so there is no more home in it, in you for it, and so that you share in his resurrection, so that your spirit is alive right now as you wait one day for a body that will go with your spirit. Freedom from evil, the presence of Christ, being aligned with him, doesn't get any better. All it takes is confessing where you're not on board with him and asking him to give you the faith to believe what he's offering to you. Lord Jesus, you have made this so simple. Lord God, we believe. We see what you've done. We see the goodness. We want that. And yet, Lord, help our unbelief.
we're not fully there. We have our own ideas of what it means to be a disciple. We have our own ideas of what it means to have a nice, comfortable life. Lord, we don't want to be bothered with other people's suffering under evil. We don't want to wrestle with our own. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Give us what we need, Lord, in order to be in step with you, to follow you on this road of discipleship wherever it leads. Lord, do that because that's what we need from you because there is no better road for us in Jesus' name.